Well, my name's Nick. Welcome to Mercy Hill. Open your Bibles. Luke. Matthew, Mark, Luke, chapter 1. If you don't, yeah, there you go. If you don't have a Bible, please raise your hands. Um, We'll get you one. You can keep it if you don't have it. You can keep it if you're going to give it away. Um, but we're, we're a church that, that gives ourselves to the study of, of God's Word because we believe that therein is life. Uh, so please, bring your, bring your Bibles and uh, get ready to open them. Get ready to look at them. Now, that being said, I, I owe Sean... Where's Sean Rafferty? Is he in here? Okay, okay good. <laughs> I owe him an apology because he texted me this last week, and he said, okay, what are you going to be teaching on in Luke? I want to, he's actually, believe it or not, now I'm not telling you this just to kind of puff him up. In fact, it's good he's not here, but, but, uh, I would encourage you guys to consider this. He, he wants to follow along and memorize the Gospel of Luke as we go, okay? So he's asking me, what verses am I going to teach? And I say, oh yeah, one, verses one through four. And then as I'm preparing, I'm like, Sean, we're not even going to get there, man. We're, this is just intro stuff, so. Uh, he'll be, we'll be in verses 1 through 4 for probably about three weeks, I think. So he'll have plenty of time. And you will too, if you want to pray about joining up for that. <laughs> um, let's read it. Luke, chapter 1. We are going to read verses 1 through 4. Though today we're going to deal with more introductory matters than um, the text that's in front of us. We'll read it and I'll pray. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty Concerning the things you have been taught. Let's pray, guys. Jesus, I feel um, I feel the weight of moments like these. I I don't take lightly the commitment to preach through a book of, of the Bible. And I'm aware, um, I'm aware of, of the amount of time and the, the even years that, that this will um, take. But God, I have great, great expectation that as we get into Luke's gospel and as we see Jesus, our Messiah, His life, His death, His resurrection. We will, we will be brought into greater worship. We will be more conformed into His image. And we'll know you better and love you more. I'm praying, Jesus, that you would use this series to build up this church. I'm praying that right now, God, You would come and You would meet with us and You would give us a a bigger picture. You'd get us excited about 
what's in store and how you plan to meet us as we journey with you through this gospel. And so now I pray that your spirit would give all of us ears to hear, hearts to feel. I know we come in sometimes distracted, divided in our affections and and attention. And Jesus, would you help us? Would you unite our hearts to fear your name right now? And would you give me a mouth to speak, God? I want to just be an instrument in your hands. We look forward to what you're going to do with us today and through these times that we spend in your word. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Well, this is a big morning. Um, for me, I, I even back before when I had uh, received the call to come here, and I was still in Philly, I, I was praying about, what would I do? What will I say? You know, what, what, uh, what will the sermon series be? What would I teach through? What would be good? And praying about these things, and, and Luke's gospel just kept coming up for me. I didn't want to get into it right away. I wanted to do some introductory stuff for a little while, so I didn't immediately commit to something that was going to be pretty big. Um, and I wanted to give a better sense of kind of who I am, what, what my passions are. And so hopefully the first couple months uh, has, has been that. But um, I can't wait. I couldn't wait to get into Luke. And this, this sermon really, my aim, my only aim, is to get us excited about it. It's to get us kind of leaning in and saying, wow, I cannot wait to see what God is going to do as we journey with Christ through Luke's gospel. I want to get us excited about it, and I figured that the best way to do that would be to uh, tell you why I'm excited about it. Tell you why I think God is calling us to spend month after month, perhaps, in this gospel. Now, I don't, again, want you to be afraid, as I say, years, because it, it will be years, but I, I feel comfortable moving as God leads in and out of other sermon texts, little mini sermon series, whatever. Don't, don't feel like, oh my gosh, I, I already know Luke inside and out. This is going to be a boring five years. No. And even if you are feeling that, I promise we will see new things in this gospel. And I promise Jesus will meet us in a fresh way. He has me. And it's, uh, I, I, I trust he will, you as well. So I'm titling this sermon series, um, Luke, All Things New. You probably see it there on your handout. I'm not going to get into why exactly. That'll be next week. But um, this morning, all I want to answer is the question, why Luke? Okay, Why Luke's gospel? Why am I excited about it? Why do I feel like God's calling us to do this? Next week, we're going to answer the question, why all things new? Why do I think that those three words encapsulate what Luke's gospel is all about? It's next week. The week following, we'll we'll finally kind of get into more of our exposition of the text. We'll look at verses 1 through 4 in particular, and we'll try to answer the question, why did Luke write this gospel?
If you notice, that's essentially what he gives us there in the first four verses. It's his purpose statement. A lot of people have written gospels or written narratives and recorded stories of Jesus. Now I'm going to do it. Here's why, Theophilus. That'll be week three. And after that, your guess is as good as mine. (laughs) But this morning we ask, why Luke? And there are many reasons I could list. I'll give you four of the most prominent. Okay? And these are going to kind of build on one another as we go, I expect. And my hope is that the, the culminating effect by the end of all this is that you'll be saying, what time is it? Can I get home and read through Luke's gospel and meet the Jesus of this gospel? I want to get home and read. I want to see this. I want to get home and spend a couple hours and read through this. I want to know the Jesus that I'm hearing here in church is coming forth from Luke's gospel. I'll give you reason number one for why Luke. Luke gives us access and insight into the whole canon of Scripture. Okay? Luke gives us access and insight into the whole canon of Scripture. We believe at this church that this book, the Bible, Not just a collection of kind of ancient mythologies, people that were trying to make sense of the chaos in the world, outside them and within them. No, no, no. Not just good moral teaching helps us as we try to live a good life, kind of realize our potential. No. We believe that this, this book contains the very words of Almighty God. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for us. That's 2 Timothy 3.16, right? God breathed words. With this being the case, the Gospel of Luke, in my opinion, ought to be of particular importance value to us because I think that Luke's reach, his canonical reach, if you will, is is larger than any of the other books uh, in the Bible. In other words, I'm seeing him reach back to the whole Old Testament, making serious connections there, and forward to the whole New Testament in ways perhaps unmatched by other books. I'll show you what I mean. Luke gives us access and insight into the whole Old Testament. We'll start there. We'll see his reach back. The coming of Christ as the climactic fulfillment of the entirety of the Old Testament is of special importance to Luke from the very beginning and all the way up to the very end of his gospel. Now, we... um, we got a little bit of this in verse 1. I, I want to show you this because he starts off saying, okay, something big is going on. All things new is actually connected to all things old. You see him start to head in that direction immediately in verse 1 when he says this, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. And we'll stop there. The things that have been accomplished among us. The word accomplished there can also mean filled up, filled to the, to the brim, fulfilled. So Jesus has 
accomplished or fulfilled something among us. And Luke wants to write about it. But what, what has he fulfilled? What are these things that he's accomplished, these things he's fulfilled? As we keep reading, we immediately see that those things that this Jesus has fulfilled as the entire Old Testament. It's all the stuff foretold, foreseen in the Old Testament. The two chapters that follow, which are with a great majority, um, uh, the great majority of the content is unique to Luke, just FYI. Uh, This is the reverberating message. Christ is the fulfillment of all things old. All things new, emerging from all things old. Now, I'll give you just an illustration as we follow Mary. I want you to see how Luke is emphasizing this connection to the Old Testament and reaching back. The angel Gabriel appears to Mary, right? And announces that she would bear the Son of God. Look at verse uh, 32 of chapter 1. Gabriel says this of the Son that she's going to bear, of Jesus. He says this, The Lord God will give to him, Jesus, the throne of his father, who? David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. The promise to David is in view here of an everlasting kingdom. And Luke is highlighting this story to get us to see that connection. But then, look a little later at Mary's response as she's reflecting on all that God's doing with her. In verse 54, part of this this song that she's singing to God, she says this, He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to His offspring, Forever. So you've got David there, the connection being made by the Gabriel, and then you've got Mary going back even further to Abraham, saying, All the covenants this Messiah is fulfilling. All things new coming from all things old. And then the whole gospel is about how Jesus is doing this. These are, this gospel is filled with the things accomplished among us. So that at the very end, what do you read? I said, he's reaching back to the Old Testament from beginning to end. Well, what do you see at the end of Luke's gospel? One of the most profound statements in all the Bible. When the resurrected Christ shows up to his disciples, right? And he does a Bible study with them. Remember this? Luke 24, verse 44, what does he say? Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Everything. In other words, the entire Old Testament pointing towards and fulfilled in me. And Luke's gospel is all about it. I mean, doesn't that statement, as I read that statement, doesn't it just make you want to kind of run like Solomon's bride through the pages of the Old Testament looking for your beloved? I mean, that's what that's an invitation to. Just, where is my beloved in Genesis? Yes, Paul, in Leviticus, in, in Isaiah. In, just go through and look. He's there. He's everywhere. That's what he's saying. 
And Luke wants to show us this. Luke wants to highlight this in particular. That's why I love it. I love it. Reaches back to the entirety of the Old Testament. Luke's gospel does. But his gospel also reaches forward and gives us kind of unique access and insight into the whole New Testament. I'll show you what I mean here. And I'm going to go a little bit faster here because these are just points that I don't know if you all are that interested in, but I am, and it sets us up introductory-wise for it, for the whole, the, whole, uh, the whole gospel. But it gives us access and insight into the whole New Testament. I'll kind of build here as I give some reasons. First, it's noteworthy that Luke's gospel is, in fact, the longest book in the New Testament. Verse by verse, it is the longest book in the New Testament. That alone already says, oh, we should give some attention to it. We value God's word. There are more words in here, in this book, than in any of the other books in the New Testament. Okay, worthy of our attention. And you know what? Luke's presentation of Christ goes back further behind. That's, I mean, we wouldn't get some of these stories about his infancy and about his, his, his young adult kind of at the age of 12 and in the temple. You don't get those stories in any of the other Gospels. Luke is reaching back further into Jesus' life, and he's, he's going forward. Um, he's going beyond where the other Gospels go. He takes us to the ascension of Christ. The other Gospels leave us at the Great Commission. But we can go a step further with Luke. And I could show you how he connects to the New Testament as a whole. Because he didn't just write the Gospel of Luke. He wrote the book of Acts. Now I know that's a little confusing because you're like, no, wait, oh, wait a minute, I turn the page from Luke 24 and I'm in John. <laughs> and John, Acts comes after that. Well, it's a little confusing, I understand, but we're, we're, we're compiling the Gospels together, all four of them. And then we're moving on. And I, what I want you to realize is that Acts was penned by the very same man that wrote the Gospel of Luke. And we know this because the dedication before Luke, like what we just read, and uh, there's a very similar one there in the book of Acts, almost verbatim, uh, dedicated to Theophilus. And in this uh, dedication in the book of Acts, he refers to his first book. We presume the Gospel of Luke. Uh, and also, the content of these two books, there's a link in the Ascension. The Gospel of Luke ends with the Ascension of Christ. The book of Acts begins with the Ascension of Christ and carries on the story from there. This is why scholars typically refer to Luke and Acts as a whole. Luke-Acts, with a little dash in between. A one, a one piece of work composed of two volumes. This is gonna, this is gonna play out huge for us as we study the Gospel of Luke. No other Gospel connects us to the life of the early church in this way. So we get the life of Christ, and I get to trace out Luke's thought as he, as he talks about the life of the church. And we'll see later, there are incredible connections there. That that Luke kind of has this bigger picture in mind. God is using Luke to give us this bigger picture of Christ's life and the life of the church. But even this isn't all. Because evidence points us towards the conclusion that Luke was actually a traveling companion of Paul. Okay? 
He was, he was the close associate on a lot of these missionary journeys. In fact, it's understood that Luke's gospel is the gospel endorsed by the Apostle Paul. And we see this in Luke as well, this interaction with particular Pauline theology. You'll see, it, it's incredible. You'll see the Holy Spirit, the way that Paul speaks of the Holy Spirit, the things he highlights, you'll see that at work in Luke's gospel and in the book of Acts. And you'll see things like the sovereignty of God that's so big to Paul play out, an election. And you'll see other elements at work in our gospel. So what this means is that Luke helps us understand Paul. Paul helps us understand Luke. Now all of a sudden, we are getting into the almost the entirety of the, of the New Testament. We have a gospel here that's connected to the book of Acts and the early church, that's connected to the epistles and the most, uh, the most written of all the apostles, um, Paul. This is the great majority of the New Testament right there. That Luke is giving us access and insight into. So if we return then to 2 Timothy 3.16 and this idea that these are the God-breathed words of Scripture. I want you to realize that where Paul goes from there, his view of Scripture in that way, is what grounds his charge to, to Timothy to preach the word in and out of season. You see that if you, if you would just read the context of that, of that text. That's in 2 Timothy 4. Because these are the God-breathed words, uh, these, these are God-breathed words that are profitable for God's people, preach the word, Timothy. So let me ask you something. If Luke gives us access and insight in a especially significant way into both the Old Testament and the New Testament, what better God-breathed words could I think to preach but Luke's Gospel? When we drink from this Gospel, we drink from the entire canon. Second reason why I'm excited and I hope you're excited about following Christ as we um, study the Gospel of Luke. Luke locates us, and I'm thinking Gentiles, within the scope of Christ's redeeming work. You say, wait a minute, I, th- I thought all the Gospels focus on Christ as kind of universal Savior, Savior of the world, and that is true. That's true. But there's a particular emphasis that Luke places on this. Okay, Now, this brings up something that's important that we need to be aware of um, in terms of gospel studies. Because we have four gospels, right? You ever wonder why? Why do we have four gospels? Why did God inspire four different authors to write the same story? I'm not looking for an answer, sorry. You guys are like, what is he expecting us to write? <laughs> Essentially, what we're given in the four Gospels, is yes, the same story, the story of this amazing God and and Savior, Jesus Christ. But we're given that same story from different angles, with different emphases, different purposes behind it. Different audiences, perhaps, as well. So here's what happens when you're studying the four Gospels, in in particular the three, what they call the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, Luke, 
John kind of goes off and he's doing his own thing, man. That guy is focusing in on some, and he's sharing other stories that we're not given much. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke, pretty similar, okay? But when you do comparative studies of the Gospels, and what they choose to highlight, how they choose to go about it, what you find is that where they differ, where Luke is unique to Matthew, Mark, or yeah, to Matthew, Mark, or John, maybe, perhaps, probably gives us insight into his purpose or one of his emphases or one of the angles from which he's coming at the accomplishments of Christ. So, therefore, I am going to try to, uh, at this point, defend the fact that Luke seems to have give a unique emphasis um, to the reality of Christ as universal Savior. Savior of not just Israel, but Gentiles. He goes out of his way to focus on this. I'll show you how. You say, what are you talking about? I'll show you. This will be cool. <laughs> Luke 3. Luke chapter 3, verses 4 to 5. I'm going to give you three examples. Here's the first. This is where, where we're describing John the Baptist. Luke is describing John the Baptist. And he's, he's um, you'll see it, quoting from Isaiah. It says this in verses uh, 4 and 5. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain Oops, I'm sorry, I lost my spot. Every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways. Now, up to this point, that should sound pretty familiar. Because that's in Matthew, and that's in Mark. They both quote the same thing from Isaiah. But, this is where the comparative studies are helpful. Only Luke carries the quotation forward. Why does he do that? What comes next in Isaiah's thought? Verse 6 of Luke 3, And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Luke in particular is interested in this work of Christ as it relates to all flesh. And he's wanting to bring that out for us to see. Now, second example, because I'm sure I haven't convinced you yet. We keep reading and, and we keep seeing the same thing in his gospel over and over. I could give you, I could be here all day. I'm just going to give you three. But I wonder, do you ever skip over the genealogies? I used to. Until I went to seminary, I totally did. You know, I don't know what's going on. I'm out of here. This is like some ancient world. and they, this is, I, don't, I don't get it. Don't do that. We're not going to do that. There, there, are, there are treasures in the genealogies, I am telling you. And Luke's genealogy, when compared with Matthew's, the only two genealogies we have of Christ, bring out some very interesting insights. Okay, When we go to Matthew's genealogy, we see him tracing Jesus' lineage back to David and all the way back to Abraham. 
In other words, Jesus is the fulfillment of these covenants. That's kind of what we saw with Mary, right? Abraham and David, these two major covenant heads to which the promises were made. Jesus is coming in their their line and fulfilling it. That's great. Luke does that too. In um, Luke 3 uh, is where his genealogy is, chapter 3. Luke does that too. He goes back to David. He goes back to to Abraham, showing that Jesus is in that line. But Luke, again, doesn't stop there. He keeps going back all the way to who? 338, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam. All flesh come from Adam. Why show the Messiah rooted not just in the covenant heads of Israel, but in the very head of the human race? Jesus is coming for the entire human race. Universal Savior here. Third, final example. All synoptics. All synoptics, so, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all describe the, the um, sending, the mission of the 12 disciples. Remember that when he sends out the 12 disciples, telling them to proclaim the kingdom. The 12 here, typically understood as symbolic of, of, of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, right? Only Luke records a second sending of Christ. The sending of 70. You, Why? This is in Luke 10. Sending 70. Why 70? Why does Luke decide to bring that out in Christ's story? Well, a lot of scholars point back to Genesis 10, where there were 70 nations that came forth from Noah, the nations of the world. And they say, the 12 represent going to the tribes of Israel. The 70 represent going unto the nations of the world. So when God sends His Son, He is going after Israel, but through Israel, He is going after the nations of this world. That's last week's sermon, in case you didn't catch that. And of course, this is precisely what we see if we keep reading from Luke to Acts. What happens? The gospel, the message of our Savior, goes from Jerusalem, Israel, to Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. And Luke has his eye on that story back at the beginning as he's penning the gospel. And he's saying, I know where this is going. I'm going to take us there in the second volume. I'm giving you a little, little flavor of it right now. Little hints. You're not going to be able to contain what this Messiah is doing. Not a localized thing. This is not just Israel here. This is going to break out and envelop the world. We would expect this. We would expect this from Luke. Why? We would expect this kind of focus on Jesus as a universal Savior. Why? When you consider authorship, audience that he's writing to, an apostolic source. It becomes very clear why this would be something on his mind. Luke, 
it's understood that he was a Gentile. We get that from Colossians 4, um, and I think it's a pretty safe inference. Luke was a Gentile himself, deeply concerned that the mission of the Messiah was, was, was relevant to him. He came from me. He's the only Gentile writer in all the Bible. Isn't that incredible? I love this gospel. Theophilus, the one he dedicates his, his book to. Gentile. It's a Greek name. It means lover of God. It's great. It's a Greek name. Gentile audience showing Theophilus, this is relevant for you. And then apostolic source. Who was Paul? What does he say he was? But an apostle to the Gentiles. So Paul's heart burdened for the Gentiles called by God to go to them. Makes total sense that we have in here a focus on the cosmic, the comprehensive, redeeming work of our Savior. We are here, just like we were in those plural nouns of Psalm 117 and the nations and the peoples. We are in the crosshairs of Luke as he's writing this gospel. I love that. I love it. Because it means that as I'm watching Jesus live, perfectly fulfilling the precepts of the law, and as I'm watching Him walk up Calvary Road, it says He sets His face to go to Jerusalem in Luke 9. And He goes to the cross and dies under the curse of the law. He lived. He died for me. And then as I turn the page with breathless amazement, and I see he rose again from the dead. I know he rose again from me. He's a universal Savior. Luke emphasizes that for us Gentiles. That's reason number two. Reason number three. Luke helps us to become what we behold. You say, what is, what is that? That sounds pithy, that sounds cute, but I have no idea what that means. It's, uh, this, this becoming what we behold is a, is a statement that, uh, maybe you've heard that before, uh, plenty of people use it, uh, because it, it basically sums up a, a principle that you see running throughout the whole scriptures. In the Old Testament, you see it in uh, the idolatry. You see it kind of put negatively, where those who worship idols become like them. There's like a text in Psalm 115.8 where it says, Your idols don't talk. They don't have ears. They're deaf, dumb, blind, stupid. Those who worship them become the same. You become what you behold, what you set your eyes on, what you set your affections on, what the goal you're looking towards, what you're looking to for help. You become like that. Positively, you see it in the Old Testament with Moses, where when he spends time with God, right, face to face, what happens? He comes out and he's glowing. He's becoming, in a way, what he beholds. As he's seeing the glory of God, he's transformed into his image. And that connects us to what we see in the New Testament. Probably the clearest summary of this principle found in Paul, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. You've probably heard this before. If you haven't, it's amazing. We all, he says, 
with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. So something better than Moses here. Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We behold His glory. We're transformed into that glory. That's the principle. But this text spins us off into a series of questions and gets us to why Luke. Okay? You say, okay, so you behold the glory of the Lord and you're transformed. I want to be transformed. You want to be transformed. How do we behold the glory of the Lord? Well, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, he says the glory of God is in the face of Jesus Christ. You want to behold the glory of God, look at Jesus Christ. And then I ask the question, well, where do you see Jesus Christ face to face? Now, I know you can see him all over the scriptures. If you've been here for a couple months, you know that is a major passion of mine. But, but, I don't know if anything beats actually walking with him as he's going through Galilee, as he's going towards Jerusalem, as we're watching him die on the cross and rise again. We are literally, at that point, beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So, where do you see the glory? In Christ. Where do you see Christ in particular? In the Gospels. Well, why Luke? Why Luke? This gets into what I was talking about earlier, about Luke's connection to the New Testament, and in particular, his writing of the book of Acts. This is amazing. Because Luke wrote the book of Acts, we get to watch this happen with the church. We get to watch Christ's narrative, his story, right? And then we get to see in Acts how his people become like him. We behold Him in the Gospel. We see what it looks like to become Him in the book of Acts. In Luke-Acts, again, the hyphen, Luke clearly sets up Jesus' narrative as the paradigm or pattern for the church's narrative. This is what's so amazing about studying Luke together, uh, or studying Luke in particular. Because I get to see how this works out. We will look at this week after week, and it's amazing. The story of Christ serves as a pattern for the portrayal of the story of the church. And what is the story of Christ? We watch Jesus move, right? From suffering to glory. We watch Him move from, from humiliation to exaltation. We watch Him move from incarnation, crucifixion, to resurrection, ascension. And then, and then, you watch the very same thing essentially happen in the book of Acts. And Luke, again, there are so many details he could be drawing from. You remember John? He says, oh man, if we were to write everything, we'd fill all the libraries in all the world. So they're, they're just choosing from a plethora of awesome stuff they could share. And Luke's drawing out things that are helping us see the early church is supposed to become what they beheld in Christ. As he picked up his cross and walked the road to Jerusalem, 
immediately following his statement in Luke 9 there, he says, now anyone who's going to follow me, pick up your cross. Follow me from shame to glory. And that's what we watch play out in the rest of the story in the book of Acts. Luke will not allow us to buy the lie that Christ suffered in my place means I don't have to suffer in this place. If the the prosperity teachers would read Luke and Acts together, there would be no way they could get away with this. That Jesus came to make us rich and wealthy and He suffered in our place so that we just get all the healing, all the wealth, all the comfort. No way! No way! Read your Bibles! That's what we're going to do. I'll give you one of the strongest links that I see. Most profound. That Luke makes between Christ's narrative and that of the churches. In Luke's gospel, Christ is anointed, right, with the Holy Spirit at his baptism. And in that he is empowered. He's empowered to walk the long road to Jerusalem where he would be rejected by the Jews, crucified, killed outside the gate, right? And on that cross, it's only Luke. Again, this is important. Only Luke who records... Him saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's Luke 23, 34. But Jesus rises from the dead and ascends to the throne of David. And his death actually moves forward the gospel program of God. It appeared like a tragedy, but it's rolling forward and the doors of salvation are open to the world. Now, That's the Gospel of Luke. That's Christ's narrative. That's Jesus' story. I'm saying that's a pattern, paradigm of the church we see in the book of Acts. So, Jesus has ascended to the throne of David at His Father's right hand. And what does He do? He pours out the Spirit. Called the what? Baptism of the Spirit. He will baptize. I baptize you with water, John says. He will baptize you with the Spirit and with fire. Tongues of fire, Spirit falling. Baptized His disciples. Acts 2. Why? For what purpose? To enable them to do ministry and all of this, right? Empower them. Empower them what? To never know suffering? To never know never know shame? To have only comfort and only victory on this earth? I don't think so. I don't think so. If you keep reading, you see Stephen. And this is where Luke just forges this link between Jesus and the early church that you just can't deny. It's incredible. So Stephen says, full of the Spirit. He's a man full of the Spirit. What happens? He's empowered for the work of ministry. And he's kind of becoming what he beholds because he's radiating this glory. Remember, he's got this face of an angel as he's, as he's kind of uh, 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 um, pushing against the religious leaders. And what happens? He's rejected in Jerusalem. They take him outside the gate and they put him to death. But while he's being put to death, what does Luke record him as saying? Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Luke 7.60 He's drawing a clear link here for us. And then what happens? Even as they're killing him, he's looking up and he says at the very end, 
what does he say? Receive my spirit, something like that. And we get this sense that he is going to be with the Father. The very same story patterned again in Stephen's life. And what happens after this apparent tragedy? This is incredible. A persecution arises in Jerusalem that then causes all these gospel believers to scatter. And you want to know what that does? It moves the gospel program forward into all the world. That's Acts 8. This suffering, this apparent tragedy moves forward the kingdom. It's not a defeat, it's a victory. But we behold what we become. That's where Stephen got his power to do this sort of thing. Acts 7, 55-56, I want you to see this. He, full of the Spirit, gazed into heaven, even as they're coming at him, and saw the glory of God. Glory of God. And Jesus, glory of God, face of Jesus Christ, I don't know, standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And you know what? He saw Him. He saw the glory. And He became what He beheld. He followed the the crucifixion road. So the question for us then, application-wise, is what are we beholding? Right? Right? What are we looking at? Are we looking at that executive that gets to take vacations whenever he wants and thinking, oh man, that would be the life. I want that. I want all the money. I want whatever. We're looking at the girl that even after pregnancy is still in a size two and we're thinking, I've been working out for, I can't, give me a break. I want that. If we are in pursuit of something lesser than God, we become something lesser than human. Deaf, dumb, blind. No, we feel we're empty. Luke's Gospel puts before our eyes every week the person of Jesus Christ. Is, Behold the glory of your God in His face and be transformed into His image. And don't you buy the lie that it's all about glory now. You're going to follow Him to the cross and into glory. Four. This will be quick. <laughs> Luke equips us to confront the idols of our city. Luke uniquely equips us to confront the idols of our city. Love this. I can't wait to get into Luke. This is one of the major reasons why I thought Luke would be amazing in San Jose. San Jose is situated, right, as, as, as at, kind of at the pinnacle of the modern world, it seems to me. I mean, you've got some of the most successful, influential individuals and companies within miles, just a few miles of our church. And I'm thinking that has got to influence the ethos of a place. And one of the things I think that does is it creates this kind of, this kind of two-group dynamic where you have the insiders. You have those that have made it, right? Those that are at the top. They, they are the successful ones. They are the elite. And then you have those that are flocking to San Jose, outsiders, if you will, trying to get in. Some of them make it. Some of them don't. Some of them stay. Some of them leave. But regardless, I think you kind of have this dynamic 
And whichever side you're on, in this sort of context, you can be tempted to think that being on the in is what matters. So those that are are inside, look down their noses and say, the world is my servant. You'll never get to where I'm at. And those that are on the outside look up with longing jealousy and say, if only I could get there. Because that's the cultural values, the cultural ideology we have here in San Jose. And we can imbibe this just by hanging out, just by walking downtown, even at our workplaces. We get this all the time. Nine to five or however much they're working in. And if you turn on the TV, you get more of it. We can be tempted to think being on the in is, ma- is what matters, but whether you're on the inside or the outside, both groups are living in the wrong kingdom. Luke, more than any other gospel, confronts the particular idols that plague our culture here in San Jose. One of the major themes, one of the major themes, unmistakable, is this theme of reversal in the Gospel of Luke. This theme that highlights it's actually the the insiders in this world that are out. And it's actually the outsiders in this world that are being brought in. It's a reverse of what you would think. This kingdom is not of this world. Luke again and again emphasizes God's love for the poor tax collectors, social outcasts, sinners, women, Samaritans, Gentiles, the people that the culture of the day devalued, Jesus comes in a particular way to value, to spend time with, to invite in. Luke alone, I'll start to get to why in comparative studies, why you would say this is a particular theme of Luke. Because again, you see this in all the Gospels, but Luke wants to draw this out. Luke alone records Jesus' anointing by that immoral woman at the table when Jesus is eating with the Pharisees. You get, this is one of my favorite stories in all the Bible. The woman who's just a sinner and, and she hears that Jesus was invited to this dinner party with these Pharisees and, and she's like, I just got to get in there. And she comes in and she's weeping. She just don't know what it is about him, but she knows she is welcome. And she's down and she's crying, right? And anointing his feet. And all the Pharisees are like, if Jesus really was a prophet, he would know she's a sinner. Probably a prostitute, something like that. And Jesus says, you guys don't get it. The insiders are out. And the outsiders are coming in. She knows she's been forgiven much. She loves much. She is welcome here. Those who exalt themselves, humble. Humble themselves, exalted. Luke alone records those beloved parables like the Good Samaritan. This shows the Samaritan that's actually the one that's doing the right thing and all the leaders are passing by on the other side. All the Jewish leaders. Oh, who was the neighbor there? The Samaritan? No, it couldn't be. The outsider on the inn? Or the prodigal son? Do you remember that? What is that but a story of outsider, insider, the older brother and the younger brother? Or the Pharisee and the tax collector? All these, only in Luke. You remember that? The guy praying in the temple, I thank you I'm not like these other guys. <laughs> they are lame. And the tax collector in the back, I can't even look up at you. I am so, I am so messed up. Forgive me the sinner. He 
He goes home justified, Jesus says. He is on the in because he knew he was out. Isn't that awesome? This is Luke's emphasis from, again, beginning to end. I am drawing this to a close, I promise. I just want to show you this beginning and Luke alone records for us this announcement by the angels of the birth of the Messiah. And it's not to the CEOs. It's not to the rich and the famous. Who's it to? The shepherds. Lowly and often despised in their culture. He said, get on in to the first ever worship service. And they come in. It's incredible. Luke's doing something from the very first first couple of, of lines of this, this book. And then he's doing it to the end because only Luke, only Luke records the story that answers the question, who was the first person ever let into paradise in light of the finished work of Jesus on the cross? Who was it? <laughs> Who's the first one to come in? Condemned criminal. Remember me when you come in your kingdom. I have nothing to offer. There is no righteousness in me. I am dying for my own sins. Just remember me. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Luke wants to show Oh, this kingdom that's not like the kingdom of the world. He's calling to both the insider and the outsider. If you're inside, you think you've got it, get outside. Realize you don't so you can come in. And if you're on the outside thinking there's no way you can even come to a church, he's saying, get in here. You are welcome here. This gospel will help us push against the kingdom of this world and live for the kingdom of heaven every week. Push against the idols of our culture. Turn them to dust like Josiah and live for a different kingdom. So I am very excited about the journey that lay before us in Luke's gospel. For Luke gives us access and insight into the whole canon of Scripture. He locates us Gentiles within the scope of Christ's redeeming work. He helps us to become what we behold and Luke equips us to confront the idols of our city. Hope you're excited too. Let's pray. Jesus, I can't believe that the outsider gets to come in. And I pray against, Lord, those of us who have been in for a while getting confident and comfortable in our own righteousness. We know that Israel was at once outside. And when they got in, they started thinking it was of their own accord. God, keep us humble. Keep us low. Keep us seeing you all, all, all over, all over the Bible, but especially in Luke. Keep our eyes set. May we become what we behold. May we know that the salvation is for us, and may we be rooted firmly in your word as we study this together, God. Thank you that you invite us in. Thank you that we get to worship you now. God, we, um, we thank you that 
as we see your glory, it's not so that you can look down on us with disdain, but so that you can invite us up into it. Thank you that you came down. Thank you that you rose up. Thank you that in your going up, it wasn't to get away from our filth. It was to prepare a place for us and to bring us to where you are. We love the gospel. I pray anyone here that hasn't received the gospel, believed, trusted, rested in the work of Christ, God, bring them to you today. And for those of us that have, may we rest, may we rest in the finished work of our Messiah, and may we, in Him, get to work in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.